This morning's reading is from Joel 2, verses 12 through 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber." Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? All right. Hey, as you guys are grabbing a seat... uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we are, we are grateful. Uh, We're grateful for your word, as Gabe said, that we uh, get to hear your word to us this morning. Uh, God, wherever we're at this morning, would you speak to us both uh, individually and uniquely, uh, as well as as a church body and as a whole, God? Uh, We need you. We need your spirit to do this. So would you give us uh, sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach your word this morning? Would uh, we allow it to shape us, and would this uh, passage in the scripture draw us into worship? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, hey, Providence, it is good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, If you are new, my name is Andrew. I am one of uh, the pastors here at the church. And, uh, man, I just got to say, as I was getting ready for this this week, I was just reminded that I... I legitimately love serving as a pastor here. Like, this has just been a fun season. As Jared said, as we're thinking about baptisms and all that God has done, man, it has been a joy. And so uh, it's a pleasure. Um, and if you've got a Bible, why don't you go to Joel chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in Joel chapter 2. So if you're new, uh, you're walking in as we're in the middle of a series through the Old Testament prophetic book, Joel. Now the theme of Joel has been this idea of repentance. So over and over and over again, we're going to hear this idea of turning to the Lord. So when you think repentance, just think turn, right? Turn, repentance. That's what we're talking about. Uh, Now one of the, the cool things is that, man, going through the last two weeks, I believe maybe more than ever that God's word has power Because as we're reading through the book of Joel, we're reading about things like locusts and suffering and judgment and destruction and armies and hopelessness and and just kind of some weird stuff the last couple weeks. Yet I've actually seen in some of your guys' life that this is like taking root. Like as we're talking about locusts, somehow like God is encouraging you guys. And as we're looking at end time judgment and armies, we're getting to hear stories of people uh, that, that's driving them to share the gospel. Like that's crazy. Like this is awesome that God, even through a, a, a book written thousands of years ago about things that maybe don't make sense to us today, God is still using them in the life of our church. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this idea of repentance. 
And I would say that the kind of the way that this is shaped up is that the first week in Joel 1, we kind of looked at the, the who of repentance, right? We looked at who needs to repent, and Joel's message was clear, all of us, right? Every person, if you have a pulse, you need to turn to God. The second week, last week we looked at kind of the why of repentance, right? So, so who needs to repent? Everybody. Why do we need to repent? Joel, the beginning of Joel 2, said that because we are sinners, because we've sinned against our God, there is a judgment coming, right? Because God is good and perfect and holy and just, he cannot just let sin go unpunished, right? In his holiness, he has to punish sin, and that's a great thing. Yet that means judgment is coming for us, and so we said that we need to turn and we need to repent. Now this week, as we get into the, the second part of Joel 2, I think we're going to shift our focus and we're going to look at the, the how of repentance, right? We've seen that, that we all need to repent because judgment is coming for sin. Therefore, the question then is, well, how do we do this, right? How do we actually repent? And so uh, for this morning, we're going to look at this section that Jenna just read and we're just going to look at three ways Three ways of how we as a people need to repent. So if you got your Bibles, go Joel 2. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to look at three ways to turn, all right? So start in verse 12. It says this. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. The first thing that we see in our text that Joel tells us how to repent is that we need to turn from our heart. The first step in repentance is to know where we're repenting, where this comes from, and he would say this is from the heart. Uh, If you guys were here uh, maybe a couple months ago, I think maybe March, we were studying through the book of Mark, and I preached a sermon with the emphasis in Mark that Jesus wants your heart. All right, some of you guys remember this. We looked at this whole passage that showed that Jesus cares deeply about our heart. Now, I think one of the big misconceptions about the Bible can sometimes be this, that when you get to the New Testament, right, you look at Jesus, you look at all these New Testament things, we think, well, in the New Testament, God cares about our heart, right? He cares about faith. He wants love and grace. It's all about the internal, right? So New Testament, it's all about Jesus and grace and faith. But then when we think about the Old Testament, we think, well, in the Old Testament, God is a bit harsh, right? God just cares about his law. He just wants external obedience to his law. He's not so much concerned with the internal, but the external, right? I think some of us carry this idea. Old Testament is more harsh and law. New Testament is this idea of faith and about our hearts. But I think Joel 2.12, what we just read, is one of the best examples in the Old Testament, one of many that show that throughout all of time, God is actually concerned about our hearts. Right? There was not this big cataclysmic kind of shift when you flip from Malachi to Matthew. Right? There's not this big change in God's character all of a sudden where one day he cares about how you externally behave and the next day he only cares about how you internally behave. Right? I, uh, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I'm going to be on thin ice here when I say this, but I was thinking about uh, when my wife was in her third trimester, um, 
there was certain times where she would, I'd come home from work one day and it would be awesome. And she was so sweet and she'd be like, hey, let's just, let's just eat dinner and hang out. Let's just cuddle on the couch. Let's watch This Is Us and just like cry together. Like, this is going to be awesome. And, uh, and that was great. I said, cool, let's do that. And then literally the next day I would wake up and she'd be like, okay, you need to just leave, right? Like you smell weird. Your voice is annoying. I just, you need to be gone today. And that's just the way it's going to be. And all the parents know, you just say, okay, and you leave because that's, you just had some of these quick changes during that time of life. Now, here's the beautiful thing. God is not like a pregnant woman in her third trimester, which we can all say amen to that, right? Because God, he doesn't go through these like crazy just changes, right? His character doesn't shift. He doesn't all of a sudden begin to act differently and think differently. Our God is the same. And what that means is that even in the Old Testament, when we're in books like Joel, God cares about the same thing then that he does when Jesus comes. He has the same desires for us then as he does for us today. And what we see in Joel 2 is that God wants our hearts. And when we think about repentance, the first thing we need to think is that we need to turn with our hearts. We need to care about our heart. He says this in verse 12. He says, return to me with all your heart. Verse 13, he says, rend to me your hearts and not your garments. Now, now we should note that he does say in here that he wants fasting and, and weeping, right? He wants mourning. There are some external signs, but what we should know is that these external signs, they're only that. They're signs of an inward reality. Right? These external things that we are to do that the Old Testament talks about, they're supposed to be signs of internal realities that are going on in our heart. God doesn't just want the external, he wants our heart. And this is just as true in the Old Testament as the New Testament. Right? We see this all over in Amos 5. It's one of these crazy chapters where God says, listen to this, he tells his people, look, you're coming and you're worshiping and you're singing and you're talking about my word and you know what? God says, I hate it. You believe this? He says, I hate your singing. I, I hate this. Why? Because it's only external. He said, what I want is the heart. I want a heart level worship. In Jeremiah 4, he says, look, I don't want you just to be circumcised on the outside. I want you to circumcise your heart. You see, these external signs, they were always meant to to point to internal realities. Now, I think for us this morning, the reason that I want this to to kind of land, and I want this to kind of press in, is because I think that often when, when we think of repentance, so maybe the last couple weeks, as we've started to talk about repentance, I think our first thought is often uh, to just, as Joel says here, just to tear our garments, right? Now, I get it. No one's actually doing that. We're not like ripping our clothes because we're so sad, but it's that idea of Wait, when we sin, we think, okay, there's an external problem that I just need to solve, right? We kind of have this mindset that our sin is just the external behaviors in our life. And so our response then is if sin is only external, then repentance must be external as well. And so we try to change our behaviors, our circumstances, and our attitudes on the outside, and we think that that is 
repentance. But I think from Joel 2, we see that external actions alone are never going to actually change our hearts. And if God wants our hearts, then the external repentance that we do is simply not going to be enough. So think about it this way. Um, Imagine you are just a card-carrying, bleeding-heart Democrat, all right? So political affiliation, you're, you're a Democrat. You're a blue donkey. You're proud of it. You're happy. Now, I don't know why you'd want to do this, but say you wanted to convince me that you're actually a Republican, all right? So you want to convince me that you're a Republican, and so what you do is you begin to just bash on Hillary and, and Bernie and your you know, Facebook posts. You start putting out all those conspiracy things, and so you're kind of changing that, and then you decide, uh, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to picket Planned Parenthood, and I'm going to put a Don Bacon sign in my front yard, and I'm going to get my NRA membership, and I'm going to top it all off with, with a big, bright red, make America great again hat. Right? And you're going to say, now look, I've done all of this because now I'm a Republican. Right? You may even go to the voting booth and you may fill in the bubbles with the name that behind it says Republican. Now you can do all of that. You can have all of these external actions to try and convince me that you're a Republican, but you know what probably hasn't changed is your worldview. Right? I mean, you could do all those things, but you know what probably hasn't changed is the actual values in your Hard. You can do the external, but almost never does that actually change our hearts. And I think the same thing is true in repentance. You can try to change some of your behaviors. You can try to act a little bit better. You can try to stop doing some things that, that outside seem bad. And what you're most likely not changing is the heart. Now, I think in Joel 2, he's saying the first step is that we need to turn from our heart. And so b- before we move on here, I, I want to just pause and um, I want to just ask the question, right? We've been talking about this repentance. We, we know that we all need to repent. We, we've seen that judgment's coming, and so we should repent now. And now I'm saying that that repentance has to come from the heart. Well, the question that should come in our minds is, well, how do we do that? Right? What does it actually look like to repent from the heart? Because again, I think that uh, I fall into this trap that when I sin, uh, repentance looks like uh, confessing that sin right, to God and to the person. Hopefully we're doing that. You're confessing to God. You're confessing to the person you sinned against. And then I kind of think I make some sort of promise that says, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore. Right? I'm going to commit to not doing that action anymore, and we feel like we've repented. Well, I think that uh, there's another step to this. I think that there's a few more questions that we need to ask ourselves to actually get to the heart. And so let me just quickly run through uh, an example of a sin and just kind of model how I think that we can begin to repent from the heart. So let's take uh, a sin that we've committed. So let's just say lying, right? So say you've lied. I'm sure that all of us have lied this week, right? We can all say, hopefully you can admit, probably you lied to someone. So uh, imagine the time that you lied to, say, a boss or a spouse or coworker or friend or whoever. So you said this lie. Now, you began to feel guilty. You either got caught or you just feel this conviction. And so you say, man, I shouldn't have lied. Uh, and so what you do is you want to go and you want to repent, right? You want to turn from this sin, 
Now, the first thing that we often do is we go, we confess, and we say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. But I think there's a couple questions we need to ask. I think there's two things, two questions that we can always ask to go one step deeper and actually repent from the heart. So I'm going to throw these questions up on the screen. So let's say you lied to your boss. Um, The question, the first question that you should ask is, what was the heart motive behind that sin? Right? Because your lie to your, to your boss or to your spouse was not just simply a, a little external lie. There was something in your heart that caused that. Right? Now that could be a, a variety of things. I mean, maybe there was fear in your life. There was fear in your heart for truth to get out, and so you lied. Maybe there was an insecurity that you didn't want your friend to know a truth about you because that would damage the perception that you have of yourself, and so you lied. Right? Maybe it was a control thing, maybe there was anxiety, whatever it was, there, there was some probably heart motive that caused you to tell that lie. So the question that we need to ask first is, what was the heart motive behind that lie? So for the sake of just an example, let's say that you didn't want your friend to know a truth about you. Right? You, there's an insecurity inside of you. You didn't want them to know the truth, and so you kind of fudged something. Right? You kind of lied to, to help keep up a reputation or perception. So that's the heart motive. Well, the second question then that we should ask ourselves is what aspect of the gospel am I not believing that caused that lie? You see, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've grasped onto the character of God and the gospel in your life, every sin that we commit, every sin that we, we do in our life is simply a disbelief in a promise of the gospel. Everything. All the sins that you commit, there's an aspect of the gospel that you're not believing in that's having you rebel from God, that's having you walk in sin. So again, let's say you lied to hide the truth about yourself. What aspects of the gospel am I not believing? Well, it might be something along the lines of uh, you feel this insecurity, you might feel this need to have a perception because when God says that you are fully validated in Christ, when he said he approves of you and you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God, when that isn't deep inside your heart, we live out of this need to be validated by others, right? right? When we don't feel validated by God, when we don't trust that God has already approved of you, he has sealed you and said you are mine, then we try to make other people do that for us. You see, the, the little lie that you might have said is not a pet sin that just needs to kind of be shoved off. No, it's probably because of a greater insecurity. And that greater insecurity is probably because there's a disbelief in your heart about the truth of the gospel. You see how this works? That, that simple lie is actually a gospel problem. And so for us, Providence, to, to actually repent from our heart is to kind of work through this. When you feel convicted of sin... Just ask yourself this week, as you're struggling with something this week, just ask these two questions. What was the heart motive and where was the disbelief that caused that? What aspect of God and the gospel am I not believing in, am I not trusting in that caused that sin? And it is then, when you get to that part, that you can actually preach the gospel in, that you can believe the gospel there, and then your heart begins to turn to God. So the first thing in repentance is we need to turn with our heart. There's a second aspect to this, right? 
That, that's the, the area of our being that God wants, that we need to turn to with. The second aspect is where we turn. And I think Joel's going to go on to say we turn from the heart, but we turn to God. Look at Joel 2, starting in verse 13 again. He says this, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Providence, we turn to God with our hearts because we know the character of God is gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He relents over destruction. And I wonder for you this morning, is that how you view God? Like think for a moment. Is that how you view God? Would you say, if you were to define, just begin to, to explain who God is, would you start with characteristics and adjectives like this? I think that one of the, the reasons that we struggle to repent, that we struggle to live lives of repentance, is because we just have a, a faulty view of the God that we're turning to. Right? To, to turn away from something that seems like it's going to offer life and give our hearts to something, we've got to have confidence in that. We've got to know who we're turning to. And I think that a lot of times we struggle to repent because we have a faulty view of the God we turn to. Now, why I love this passage is because he doesn't just say, hey, just trust me, just turn. He doesn't just give us some random adjectives. Maybe you notice that this verse, verse 13, Joel is actually just stealing from an earlier part in the Bible. That definition for God, that giving the characteristics of God, actually comes from a passage in Exodus 34. Maybe you might remember that in Exodus 34, Moses tells God, he says, I want to see your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you, God. I want to know who you are. And it says, God passes by, and God says this to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See that Joel, he's just picking up the very characteristics that help define the glory of God. If you want to know who God is, this is one of the best places to start. Our God is gracious. He is merciful. Our God is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful and he forgives sin. This is our God. And Providence, this is why in the midst of judgment, we can turn to him. And in the midst of when you feel a conviction over your sin, you can turn to God because he's a God who's defined by grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. And so for us, I think it's important to actually ask the question, is that how we view God? Uh, This morning, is that how you view God? I I think that it's easy 
if I can just be honest, uh, this is kind of one of my faults, is when, when I read through books like Joel, right, one of the things that keeps popping into my mind is just the, uh, probably a few different faulty views of God. Right, you'll read a book like Joel, and, and if you have read through it, uh, the, the first half, I mean, it is, it's mostly just judgment. Right? I mean, it's mostly just God saying, I am going to destroy everything. Right? I'm going to bring uh, destruction to everybody. And look, it's coming. Like, you can't put this off. It is coming. And sometimes in my mind, it seems like in these prophets that God is just this like, vindictive judge, right? Like, if we're not careful, we can drift into this mindset that God is just up in the skies and he's just laughing like as the world burns. And he's just saying, I'm sending locusts and I'm sending armies and I'm just going to destroy everything. Another faulty view that I've heard um, as we read through this is almost that, that God, uh, some people have thought that he has the, the voice of kind of an abuser, right? Like he, he's telling his people, look, you're no good, like, you're, you're no good. You're not going to amount to any. You need me. Like, if you really want life, you need to come to me. And I'm going to kind of punish you until you come to me, right? And it's this kind of manipulation, abusive type relationship. And some people have actually turned from God because they said he just seems manipulative. He seems like this evil judge. But I want you to hear me this morning. I want you to hear me that God is not a wicked judge. God is not some sort of manipulator or abuser. When you read through Joel, this week, I challenge you, read through Joel, but read it with the tone of a heartbroken father. All right, read it with the tone of a heartbroken father. I think the character of God shines in Joel because the cries that he is crying out is not from wickedness or manipulation. It's from heartbreak. Right, God has this deep care for his people. It's, it's actually this abounding love that causes Joel to be written. It's this love that causes God to be saying, hey, come back. Right, stop destroying your life. Come home. Like, like, Just come back to me. I've offered you life. I've offered you hope. I've offered you forgiveness. Quit running and come home. The tone of God here is not this evil judge. It's a heartbroken father wanting his children to simply come home. Right? It makes me think about the, the story in Luke 15 of the lost son, right? or the prodigal son. If you don't know the story, it's this son who he takes the wealth from his father. He runs away. He squanders all the wealth, destroys his life, and he walks back to the father just wanting to be treated like a slave. He said, just treat me like a slave. And you know what the father does? He runs to him. He surrounds him. He offers him nothing but grace and honor. He restores him and he gives him everything else that he has. And this is the heart of God. That when we turn, he is telling you that judgment is coming, not just to to laugh and be excited that you're going to face it, but so that you can turn and come to him. It's a father's cry to his sons and daughters to come back before they destroy their life. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Is that how you view God this morning? 
I think it's also important for us to note uh, in Joel 14, right after he gets this character of God, do you notice the tone of Joel? Look at the beginning of verse 14. He says, if this is the character of God, he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Some translations might say, hey, hey, maybe he might relent from judgment. Joel's saying, look, who knows? Maybe, just maybe, God will be gracious to us. Joel is having this kind of wishful thinking of, hey, look, I've heard the stories of how God has saved people in, out of Egypt. I've heard the stories about how when his people sin, he offers love and forgiveness. So, guys, if we just repent, who knows? Maybe he might do it again. You see, for Joel, he has these, these two, what seems like paradoxical characteristics of God, and he doesn't quite know how to put them together. Right? He says, I know God is judge, and I know that he's going to bring judgment someday. Yet in his character, it says he's gracious. It says that he's loving and that he forgives sins. And so for Joel, he says, I don't know how these things work, but maybe, just maybe, if we turn back to him, he'll relent. Now, I'm not judging Joel because at his point in history, that's all he had to go off of. Right? He knew the character of God, and he's just hoping that maybe judgment wouldn't come. But if that's you this morning, if you think, you know, I don't know, maybe I've sinned too far, maybe I've done too much, but maybe, just maybe, God might relent. I want you to hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul has this beautiful explanation of these two things when he says, God is both judge, yet he's also savior. God is just, but he's also the justifier. And if you wonder how these two things can meet, he says, look no further than Calvary. He said, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when we look at the cross of Jesus, we see God. We see Jesus as God, the Son. And when he was there, he is the only one who could actually execute God's judgment. He, he came and he could execute the judgment that we're talking about. He's the final judge that we are going to answer to. Yet in the cross, he was not only the judge, but he became the Savior. On Calvary, God proved to be just and that he would pay for sin. But he proved to be the justifier in that if you trust in Jesus, he already paid for your sin. You see how this works? That Jesus was not only just, but if your faith is in him, all the judgment for your sins that has to be paid for was paid for on the cross. God proved both judge and justifier. He proved that he will bring judgment, but if you trust in him, it is finished and paid for. If you this morning want to know the character of God, just look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there he proved gracious. So this morning, would you look to the cross, and when you do, you can confidently take hold of Joel 2.13 and say that I know God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He punishes sins, but he offers forgiveness. This is our God. So we turn with our heart and we turn to God because he is gracious and offers forgiveness. Now I have probably gone too long, so I don't have much time. But let me just quickly look at the the third section here. The third thing is that we need to turn in community. Look at verses 15 through 17 quickly. He says, between the vestibule and the, or no, no, 15, sorry. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom, bridegroom leave his room, the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? We turn from our heart and we turn to God. But the third aspect that we especially today need to remember is that we do this, we turn in community. Right? Maybe this language is familiar to you if you were here in uh, the first week. That This is the same thing he said in week one. He says, hey, gather everybody, all the peoples of the land, bring them together. But this time, he's not bringing them together to tell them of judgment. He's saying, hey, let's come together and just plead for God's grace. Now let's gather as a people that are dependent on the mercy of God. Let's get everybody here and let's all beg that God would have mercy on us. Providence, I think this is a good and clear picture uh, of what the church really is. Right? If, if you're here this morning and you think that you know, maybe you want to be a part of the church because the church is just the good people, Right? It's the people that maybe have morality figured out, or at least we think we do. Right? It's, the, it's the people that seem to have things more put together. It's the, it's the people that have kind of achieved some sort of moral level. I want you to say that we're more like Joel 2. We're a people gathered together just pleading for the grace of God. That's the church. We're just a people that are sinful, gathering together, pleading for God to have grace. We're simply a people that turn and we turn together. We come before the Lord together. In this section, they actually gather near the temple. They gather in the presence of God and they just ask, God, would you have mercy on us? God, would you give grace? We are sinners, but we want your grace. At the core, that's what it means to be a Christian. To recognize that you're a sinner and you're just pleading for God's grace. And so, Providence, just to end, can I just encourage us, could we be a people uh, that walk deeply in community, right? Like they're gathering together. We gather here on Sundays just to sing about, to teach about, to proclaim the grace of God, to remind ourselves that we are here because of the grace of God. But, but we also want to be a people that know each other outside of Sundays, Right, these mornings, these are awesome. I love singing with you guys. I love getting to preach. I love getting to hear God's word. I love this. But we need to be a people that actually walk deeply in community. That if we're going to be a, a repentant people, I think Joel says we do that as a people, not just random individuals. And so um, I would ask you, I mean, one of the things that we do here to actually live this out is we have these things called city groups. 
right? If you're new, city groups are simply just smaller groups of people that are families on mission. They're people that know each other and who are on mission in our city together. And so as lovingly as I can say, if you're not in a city group, would you get in a stinking city group? Right? Like if you want to be known, if you want to know people, if you want to turn and love God together, would you, would you get into a city group? Would you be known by other people? Would you know other people? And as you're doing that, would you allow people to actually speak into your life? It's one of the hardest things I think that, that we struggle with is that we don't want people to actually speak in, but would you allow that? Would you allow people to, to show you where you may be off and, and allow them to call you back? Would you do this together? And I love in verse 17, it says, look, we do all this so that God would actually be known among the nations. It says the way that we live as a repentant community actually should shine out so that our neighbors, our cities, and the nations would see that there's something different in us. That when God gives grace to us, it's so that the world can look in and see how good our God is is. So would you live in that? At your workplace, would you be the first one to own sin, right? And probably many cultures in your workplaces where it's not popular to own mistakes, it's not popular to show your weaknesses, would you say, man, I'm going to just trust God, and when I screw up, I'm going to own it, right? I'm going to be the first one to apologize. I'm going to be the first one to offer forgiveness. I'm going to live freely because I know that I have been fully accepted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I guarantee you, if you do that, your coworkers are going to take notice. Right? In your marriages, in your relationships, would you and your spouse be just passionate about apologizing and offering forgiveness, repenting and giving grace? Would you be for your spouse more than you're for yourself? And I guarantee your kids, your neighbors, the people around you will take Notice, one of the greatest witnesses we have is how we are free to own our sin because the grace of God has covered us. And that is what people are striving for. So would we do that? Would we live as a community of people who are freely confessing sin, freely giving grace, because everything we have has been accomplished in the gospel of Jesus? Amen? Okay, let me pray for us. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that you uh, reveal yourself to us and that you call us into something more. God, I pray for us as a people, would you help us um, turn to you, even this morning, whatever sin is plaguing us, whatever struggle is weighing us down, oh man, would we just give that to you? Would we realize that your character is gracious and merciful? That you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and we can give you our heart God, would we do that this morning? I pray right now, maybe for people in the room, if there's a sin that's plaguing us, if we say, God, I don't know if there's enough grace because I've done this, right now would your spirit press into us in this very moment, whoever that is, would you say to them, I am gracious and merciful, that I am slow to anger, and I am abounding in steadfast love. God, would you make your father's heart known to us this morning and would we run to you would we unashamedly run to you and know that you have sealed us in your grace and your gospel has covered us god would we live in this more and more we pray this in jesus name amen